Section 12 of Once a Week by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Burlesques. The Seaside Novelette may be read on the pier. Number 98 A Simple English Girl. Chapter 1 Primrose Farm. Primrose Farm stood slumbering in the sunlight of an early summer morn. Save for the gentle breeze which played in the tops of the two tall elms, all nature seemed at rest. Chanticleer had ceased his song. The pigs were asleep. In the barn the cow lay, thinking. A deep peace brooded over the rural scene, the peace of centuries. Terrible to think that in a few short hours, but perhaps it won't. The truth is, I have not quite decided whether to have the murder in this story or in number 99, the severed thumb. We shall see. As her alarm clock, a birthday present, struck five, Gwendolen French sprang out of bed and plunged her face into the clump of nettles which grew outside her lattice window. For some minutes she stood there, breathing in the incense of the day. Then, dressing quickly, she went down into the great oak-beamed kitchen to prepare breakfast for her father and pigs. As she went about her simple duties, she sang softly to herself a song of love and knightly deeds. Little did she think that a lover, even at that moment, stood outside her door. Hey-ho, sighed Gwendolen, and she poured the bran mash into a bowl and took it up to her father's room. For eighteen years Gwendolen French had been the daughter of John French of Primrose Farm. Endowed by nature with a beauty that is seldom seen outside this sort of story, she was yet as modest and as good a girl as was to be found in the county. Many a fine lady would have given all her Parisian diamonds for the peach-like complexion which bloomed on the fair face of Gwendolen. But the gifts of nature are not to be bought and sold. There was a sudden knock at the door. "'Come in,' cried Gwendolen in surprise. Unless it was the cow, it was an entirely unexpected visitor. A tall and handsome young man entered, striking his head violently against a beam as he stepped into the low-ceilinged kitchen. "'Good morning,' he said, repressing the remark which came more readily to his lips. "'Pray forgive this intrusion. The fact is, I have lost my way, and I wondered—' whether you would be kind enough to inform me as to my whereabouts. Recognizing from his conversation that she was being addressed by a gentleman, Gwendolen curtsied. This is Primrose Farm, sir, she said. I fear, he replied with a smile, it has been my misfortune never to have heard so charming a name before. I am Lord Beltravers, of Beltravers Castle, Beltravers. Having returned last night from India, I came out for an early stroll this morning, and I fear that I have wandered out of my direction. Why, cried Gwendolen, 
"'Your lordship is miles from Beltravers Castle. "'How tired and hungry you must be!' "'She removed a lettuce from the kitchen chair, "'dusted it, and offered it to him. "'That is to say, the chair, not the lettuce. "'Let me get you some milk,' she added. "'Picking up a pail, she went out to inspect the cow. "'Gad,' said Lord Beltravers, as soon as he was alone, he paced rapidly up and down the tiled kitchen. Deuce take it, he added recklessly. She's a lovely girl. The Bell Traverses were noted in two continents for their hard swearing. Here you are, sir, said Gwendolen, returning with the precious liquid. Lord Beltravers seized the pail and drained it at a draught. Heavens, but that was good. What was it? Milk, said Gwendolen. "'Milk. I must remember. "'And now may I trespass on your hospitality still further "'by trespassing on your assistance "'so far as to solicit your help "'in putting me far enough back on my track "'to discover my way back to Beltravers Castle?' "'When he was alone, he said that sentence again to himself "'and wondered what had happened to it.' "'I will show you,' she said simply. "'They passed out into the sunlit orchard. "'In an apple tree a thrush was singing. "'The gooseberries were overripe. "'Beetroots were flowering everywhere. "'You are very beautiful,' he said. "'Yes,' said Gwendolen. "'I must see you again. "'Listen, tonight my mother, Lady Beltravers, "'is giving a ball. "'Do you dance?' "'Alas, not to the tango,' she said sadly. "'The Bell Traverses do not tang,' he announced with simple dignity. "'You valse? Good. Then will you come?' "'Thank you, my lord. Oh, I should love to. "'That is excellent. And now I must bid you good-bye. "'But first will you not tell me your name?' "'Gwendolen French, my lord.' "'Ah!' One F or two? Three, said Gwendolen, simply. Chapter Two Beltravers Castle Beltravers Castle was a blaze of lights. At the head of the old oak staircase, a magnificent example of the Selfridge period, the Lady Beltravers stood receiving her guests. Magnificently gowned in one of Sweeting's latest creations, and wearing round her neck the famous Beltravers seed pearls, she looked a picture of stately magnificence. As each guest was announced by a bevy of footmen, she extended her perfectly gloved hand and spoke a few kind words of welcome. "'Good evening, Duchess. So good of you to look in. Ah, Earl, charmed to meet you. You'll find some sandwiches in the billiard-room.' Beltravers, show the Earl some sandwiches. How do you do, Professor? Delighted you could come. Won't you take off your galoshes? All the county was there. Lord Hobble was there wearing a magnificent stud. Erasmus Belt, the famous author, whose novel, Bitten, a romance, went into two editions. Sir Septimus Root, the inventor of the fireproof spat, 
Captain the Honourable Alfred Nibbs, the popular breeder of blood tortoises. The whole world and his wife were present, and towering above them all stood Lord Beltravers of Beltravers Castle, Beltravers. Lord Beltravers stood aloof in a corner of the great ballroom. Above his head was the proud coat of arms of the Beltraverses, a headless sardine on a field of tomato. As each new arrival entered, Lord Beltravers scanned his or her countenance eagerly, and then turned away with a snarl of disappointment. Would his little country maid never come? She came, at last, attired in a frock which had obviously been created in Little Popley, she looked the picture of girlish innocence as she stood for a moment, hesitating, in the doorway. Then her eyes brightened as Lord Beltravers came towards her with long, swinging strides. "'You're here!' he exclaimed. "'How good of you to come! I have thought about you ever since this morning. There is a valse beginning. Will you valse it with me?' "'Thank you,' said Gwendolen shyly. Lord Beltravers, who valsed divinely, put his arm round her waist and led her into the circle of dancers. Chapter 3. Affianced The ball was at its height. Gwendolen, who had been in to supper eight times, placed her hand timidly on the arm of Lord Beltravers, who had just begged a polka of her. "'Let us sit this out,' she said. "'Not here in the garden.' "'Yes,' said Lord Beltravers gravely. "'Let us go. I have something to say to you.' Offering her his arm, he led her down the great terrace which ran along the back of the house. "'How wonderful to have your ancestors always around you like this,' cooed Gwendolen, as she gazed with reverence at the two statues which fronted them. "'Venus,' said Lord Beltravers shortly, and Samson. He led her down the steps and into the ornamental garden, and there they sat down. "'Miss French,' said Lord Beltravers, "'or, if I may call you by that sweet name, Gwendolen, "'I have brought you here for the purpose of making an offer to you. "'Perhaps it would have been more in accordance with etiquette "'had I approached your mother first. "'Mother is dead,' said the girl simply. "'I am sorry,' said Lord Beltravers, bending his head in courtly sympathy. "'In that case I should have asked your father to hear my suit.' "'Father is deaf,' she replied. "'He couldn't have heard it.' "'Tut, tut,' said Lord Beltravers impatiently. "'I beg your pardon,' he added at once. "'I should have controlled myself.' That being so, he went on, I have the honor to make to you, Miss French, an offer of marriage. May I hope? Gwendolen put her hand suddenly to her heart. The shock was too much for her fresh young innocence. She was not really engaged to Giles Earwaker, though he too was hoping. And the only three times that Thomas Ritson had kissed her, she had threatened to box his ears. "'Lord Beltravers,' she began. "'Call me Beltravers,' he begged. "'Beltravers, I love you. I give you a simple maiden's heart.' 
"'My darling,' he cried, clasping her thumb impulsively, "'then we are affianced.' He slipped a ring off his finger and fitted it affectionately on two of hers. "'Wear this,' he said gravely. "'It was my mother's. She was a dindigu. See, this is their crest, a rowless herring over the motto, Dans l'huile. Observing that she looked puzzled, he translated the noble French words to her. And now let us go. Another dance is beginning. May I beg for the honor? Belle Travers, she whispered lovingly. Chapter 4 Exposure the next dance was at its height. In a dream of happiness, Gwendolen revolved with closed eyes round Lord Beltravers of Beltravers Castle, Beltravers. Suddenly, above the music, rose a voice, commanding, a threatening. Stop! cried the lady, Beltravers. As if by magic, the band ceased, and all the dancers were still. "'There is an intruder here,' said Lady Beltravers, in a cold voice. "'A milkmaid, a common farmer's daughter. "'Gwendolen French, leave my house this instant.' Dazed, hardly knowing what she did, Gwendolen moved forward. In an instant, Lord Beltravers was after her. "'No, no, mother,' he said with the utmost dignity, not a common milkmaid, but the future Lady Beltravers. An indescribable thrill of emotion ran through the crowded ballroom. Lord Hobble's stud fell out, and Lady Susan Golightly hurried across the room and fainted in the arms of Sir James Bat. What? cried the Lady Beltravers. My son, the last of the Beltraverses, the Beltraverses, who came over with Julius, warned her, I should say, Caesar, marry a milkmaid? No, mother, he is marrying what any man would be proud to marry, a simple English girl. There was a cheer, instantly suppressed, from a socialist in the band. For just a moment, words failed Lady Beltravers. Then she sank into a chair and waved her guests away. "'The ball is over,' she said slowly. "'Leave me. My son and I must be alone.' One by one, with murmured thanks for a delightful evening, the guests trooped out. Soon mother and son were alone. Lord Beltravers, gazing out of the window, saw the cellist laboriously dragging his cello across the park. Chapter 5. The End And now, dear readers, I am in a difficulty. How shall the story go on? The editor of the Seaside Library asks quite frankly for a murder. His idea was that the Lady Beltravers should be found dead in the park next morning, and that Gwendolen should be arrested. This seems to me both crude and vulgar. Besides, I want a murder for number 99 of the series, The Severed Thumb. No, I think I know a better way out. Old John French sat beneath a spreading pear tree and waited. Early that morning a mysterious note had been brought to him, asking for an interview on a matter of the utmost importance. 
this was the trysting place. "'I have come,' said a voice behind him, "'to ask you to beg your daughter—'I have come,' cried Lady Beltravers, "'to ask you—'I have come,' shouted her ladyship, "'to—John French wheeled round in amazement. "'With a cry, the Lady Beltravers shrank back. "'Eustace,' she gasped, "'Eustace, Earl of Turbot.' "'Eliza, what are you doing here? "'I came to see John French.' "'What?' he asked with his hand to his ear. "'She repeated her mark loudly several times. "'I am John French,' he said at last. "'When you refused me and married Beltravers, "'I suddenly felt tired of society, "'and I changed my name and settled down here as a simple farmer.' My daughter helps me on the farm. Then your daughter is Lady Gwendolen Hake. A beautiful double wedding was solemnized at Beltravers in October. The Earl of Turbot leading Eliza, Lady Beltravers, to the altar, while Lord Beltravers was joined in matrimony to the beautiful Lady Gwendolen Hake. There were many presents on both sides, which partook equally of the beautiful and the costly. Lady Gwendolen Beltravers is now the most popular hostess in the country, but to her husband she always seems the simple English milkmaid that he first thought her. Ah! The Secret of the Army Aeroplane in the thrilling manner of Mr. William Lequeux. Yes, said my friend Ray Raymond, as a grim smile crossed his typically English face, looking round the chambers which we shared together, though he never had occasion to practice, though I unfortunately had. It is a very curious affair indeed. Tell us the whole facts, Ray urged Vera Valance, the pretty, fair-haired daughter of Admiral Sir Charles Valance, to whom he was engaged. "'Well, dear, they are briefly as follows,' he replied with an affectionate glance at her. "'It is well known that the Germans are anxious to get hold of our new aeroplane, and that the secret of it is at present locked in the inventor's breast.' Last Tuesday, a man with his moustache brushed up the wrong way, alighted at Basingstoke Station, and inquired for the refreshment room. This leads me to believe that a dastardly attempt is about to be made to wrest the supremacy of the air from our grasp. Immediately, I swooned. And even in the face of this, the government denies the activity of German spies in England. I exclaimed bitterly as soon as I had recovered consciousness. Jaycox, said my old friend, as a patriot it is nonetheless my duty to expose these miscreants. Tomorrow we go to Basingstoke. Next Thursday, then, saw us ensconced in our private sitting-room at the Bull Hotel, Basingstoke. On our way from the station I had noticed how ill-prepared the town was to resist invasion, and I had pointed this out bitterly to my dear old friend, Ray Raymond. Yes, he remarked grimly, 
and it is simply infested with spies. Jack, my surmises are proving correct. There will be dangerous work afoot tonight. Have you brought your electric torch with you? Since that Rosith affair, I never travel without it, I replied, as I stood with my back to the cheap mantel shelf, so common in English hotels. The night was dark, therefore we proceeded with caution as we left the inn. The actions of Ray Raymond were curious. As we passed each telegraph pole, he stopped and said grimly, Ah, I thought so, and drew his revolver. When we had covered fifteen miles, we looked at our watches by the aid of our electric torches and discovered that it was time to get back to the hotel, unless we wished our presence, or rather absence, to be made known to the German spies. Therefore, we returned hastily. Next morning, Ray was recalled to town by an urgent telegram. Therefore, I was left alone at Basingstoke to foil the dastardly spies. I stayed there for thirteen weeks, and then went with my old friend Grimsby, he having received news that a German hairdresser named MacDonald was resident in that town. "'My dear Jack,' said my friend Ray Raymond, his face assuming the sphinx-like expression by which I knew that he had formed some theory for the destruction of his country's dastardly enemies, "'Tonight we shall come to grips with the Teuton.' "'And yet,' I cried, "'the government refuses to admit the activity of German spies in England.' "'Ha!' said my friend grimly. "'He opened a small black bag and produced a dark lantern, "'a coil of strong silk rope, and a small but serviceable jemmy. "'All that burglarious outfit belonged to my friend.' At this moment, the pretty fair girl to whom he was engaged, Vera Valance, arrived, but returned to London by the next train. At ten o'clock, we proceeded cautiously to the house of MacDonald, the hairdresser, whom Ray had discovered to be a German spy. "'Have you your electric torch with you?' inquired my dear old college friend. "'I have,' I answered grimly. "'Good. Then let us enter.' "'You mean to break in?' I cried, amazed at the audacity of my friend. "'Bah!' he said. "'Spies are always cowards.' Therefore we knocked at the door. It was opened by two men, the elder of whom gave vent to a quick German imprecation. The younger had a short beard. "'You are a German spy?' inquired Ray Raymond. "'No,' replied the bearded gentleman in very good English. "'adding with marvellous coolness, "'to what, pray, do we owe this unwarrantable intrusion? "'To the fact that you are a spy "'who has been taking secret tracings of our army aeroplane,' "'retorted my friend. "'But the spy only laughed in open defiance. "'Well, there's no law against it,' he replied. "'No,' retorted Ray grimly, "'thanks to the stupidity of a crass government,' "'There is no law against it.' "'My God!' I said hoarsely, and my face went the color of ashes. "'But my old friend Jackass, I mean Jaycox, and I,' continued Ray Raymond, "'fixing the miserable spy with his eye, "'have decided to take the law into our own hands. "'I have my revolver, and my friend has his electric torch. 
give me the tracings. Gott, no, cried the German spies in German. Never, you English cur. But Ray had already extracted a letter from the elder man's pocket and was making for the door. I followed him. When we got back to our hotel, he drew the letter from his pocket and eagerly examined it. I give it here as an exact copy, and I may state that when we sent it to His Majesty's Minister for War, he returned it without a word. Berkeley Chambers, Cannon Street, E.C. Dear Sir, in reply to yours of the 29th Alt, we beg to say that we can do you a good line in shaving brushes at the following wholesale prices. Badger, 70 shillings a gross. Pure Badger, 75 shillings a gross. Real Badger, 80 shillings a gross. Awaiting your esteemed order, which we shall have pleasure in promptly executing, we are, sir, yours obediently, Wilkinson and Albert. Mr. James MacDonald. The letter, innocent enough upon the face of it, contained dastardly instructions from the chief of police to a German spy. Read by the alphabetical codes applied to every German secret agent in England, it ran as follows. Phrase 1. Discover without delay secret of new aeroplane. Phrase 2. Forward particulars of best plan for blowing up. 1. Portsmouth Dockyard, 2. Woolwich Arsenal, 3. Albert Memorial. Phrase 3. Be careful of Jack Jaycox. He carries a revolver and an electric torch. Ah, said my friend grimly, we were only just in time. Had we delayed longer, England might have knelt at the proud foot of a conqueror. Next morning we returned to the chambers which we shared together in London, and were joined by Vera Valance, the pretty fair daughter of Admiral Sir Charles Valance, to whom my old friend was engaged. And, as he stroked her hair affectionately, I realized, thankfully, that he and I had indeed been the instruments of providence in foiling the plots of the German spies. But how will it all end? When will the Germans strike? The Halo They Gave Themselves A Collaboration by the Authors of The Broken Halo and The Woman Thou Gavest Me Chapter 1, Sunday Morning Mrs. Barclay Begins It was a beautiful Sunday morning, all nature browsed in solemn Sabbath stillness. The little grey woman of the night light was hurrying, somewhat late, to church. Down the white ribbon of road, the virile Benedict of the libraries came bicycling, treadling easily from the ankles. He rode boldly, with only one hand on the handlebars, the other in the pocket of his white flannel cricketing trousers. His footballing tie, with his college arms embroidered upon it, flapped gently in the breeze. To look at him, you would have said that he was probably a crack polo player on his way to defend the championship against all comers, or the captain of a country golf eleven. As he rode, his soul overflowing with the joy of life, he hummed the collect for the day. 
it was exactly opposite the church that he ran into the little grey woman of the nightlight. He had just flashed past a labourer in the road, known to his cronies as the flap-eared denizen of the turnip patch, a labourer who, in the dear dead days of Queen Victoria, would have touched his hat humbly, but who now, in this horrible age of attempts to level all class distinctions, actually went on lighting his pipe. Alas, that the respectful deference of the poor toward the rich is now a thing of the past. So thought the virile Benedict of the libraries, and in thinking this he had let his mind wander from the important business of guiding his bicycle. In another moment he had run into the little grey woman of the nightlight. She had seen him coming and had given a warning cry, but it was too late. The next moment he shot over his handlebars, but even as he revolved through the air he wondered how old she really was, and what, if any, was her income. For since the death of the little white lady, he had formed a habit of marrying elderly women for their money, and his fifth or sixth wife had perished of old age only a few months ago. Hall Kane, waking up. Who, pray, is the little white lady? Mrs. Barclay. His first wife. She comes in my book, The Broken Halo, now in its two hundredth edition. Hall Kane, annoyed. Tut. Jove, he said cheerily, as he picked himself and her and his bicycle up, that was a nasty spill, as my Aunt Louisa used to say to the curate when he upset the milk jug into her lap, no milk, thank you. His brown eyes danced with amusement as he related this little reminiscence of his boyhood. To the grey woman, he seemed to exhale youth from every pore. "'What did your Aunt Louisa say when her ankle was sprained?' she asked with a rueful smile. In an instant the merry banter faded from the virile Benedict's brown eyes, and was replaced by the commanding look of one who has taken a brilliant degree in all his medical examinations. "'Allow me,' he said brusquely, "'I am a doctor.' He bent down and listened to her ankle." It did not take Dr. Dick Cameron's quick ear long to find out all there was to know. His manner became very gentle, and his voice very low, and though he continued to exhale youth, he did it less ostentatiously than before. "'I must carry you home,' he said, picking her up in his strong young arms. "'You cannot go to church today.' "'But the curate is preaching.' Dr. Dick murmured something profane under his breath about curates. He had, alas, these moments of irreverence, as, for instance, on one occasion when he had spoken of Mr. Lewis and Parker's noble picture play, Joseph and his Brethren, quite shortly as Joe's Bros. "'I will carry you home,' he said gently. "'Tell me where you live, little grey woman.' She smiled up at him bravely. "'The manor house,' she said. His voice became yet more gentle. "'And now tell me your income,' he whispered, and his whole being trembled with emotion as he waited for her reply. Mrs. Barclay. 
There, that's the end of the chapter. Now it's your turn. Hall Kane, waking up. I don't know if I told you that in my last great work of the imagination, in which I collaborated with the Bishop of London, I wrote throughout in the first person. Nearly a million copies were sold, thus showing that the heart of the great public approved of my method of telling my story through the mouth of a young and innocent girl, exposed to great temptation. I should wish, therefore, to repeat that method in this story, if you could so arrange it. Mrs. Barclay. But that's easy. The little grey woman shall tell Dr. Dick the story of her first marriage. I did that in my last book, The Broken Halo, now in its two-hundredth edition. Hall Kane, annoyed. Tut. Chapter 2. Under the Cedar. Mrs. Barclay continues. They were having tea in the garden, the little grey woman and Dr. Dick. More than six months had elapsed since the accident outside the church, and Dr. Dick still remained on at the manor house in charge of his patient, wishing to be handy in case the old sprain came on again suddenly. She was eighty-two and had twelve thousand a year. On the lawn a thrush was singing. How fresh and green the world is today, sighed Dr. Dick, leaning back and exhaling youth. As the curate used to say to my Aunt Louisa, a delightful shower after the rain. He laughed merrily and threw a crumb at the thrush with the perfect aim of a good cricketer throwing the ball at the wickets. My dear boy, said the little grey woman, the world is always fresh and green to youth like yours. But to an old woman like me, not old, said Dick with an ardent glance, only eighty-two. Mrs. Beauchamp, will you marry me? She looked at him with a sad but tender smile. What would my friends say? she asked. Bother your friends. My dear boy, you would be considerably surprised if you could glance through an approximate list of the friends I possess today. Do you know that if I marry you, I shall be required to make an explanation to several royal ladies? That is, if they graciously grant me the opportunity to do so. But I want your mon... I mean, I love you, he pleaded, the light of his youth shining in his brown eyes. The little grey woman looked at him tenderly. Their eyes met. Listen, she said, I will tell you the story of my first marriage, and then, if you wish to, you shall ask me again. Dr. Dick helped himself to another slice of cake and leant back to listen. Mrs. Barclay. There you are. Now you can do Chapter 3. Hall Kane. Excellent. It is quite time that one got some emotion into this story. In The Woman Thou Gavest Me, of which more than a million, Mrs. Barclay. Emotion, indeed. My last book is already in its two-hundredth edition. Hall Kane, annoyed. Tut. Mrs. Beauchamp's Story. Mr. Hall Kane takes up the tale. I have always had a wonderful memory, and my earliest recollection is of hearing my father ask, 
on the day when I was born, whether it was a boy or a girl. When they told him a girl, he let fall a rough expression which sent the blood coursing over my mother's pale cheeks like lobster sauce coursing over a turbot. My father, John Boomster, was a great advertising agent, perhaps the greatest in the island, though he always said that there was one man who could beat him. He wanted a son to succeed him in the business, and in the years to come he never forgave me for being a girl. He would often glare at me in silence for three-quarters of an hour, and then, letting fall the same rough expression, throw a boot at me and stride from the room. A hard, cruel man, my father, and yet, in his fashion, he was fond of me. It was not until I was eighteen that he first spoke to me. To my dying day I shall never forget that evening, nor his words, which bit themselves into my mind as a red-hot iron bites its way into cheese. Nell, he said, for that was my name, though he had never used it before, I've arranged that you are to marry Lord Wurzel two months from today. At these terrible words the blood ebbed slowly from my ears, and my hands grew hot. I do not know him, I said in a stifled voice. You will tomorrow, he laughed brutally, and with another rough word he strode from the room. Lord Worzel, I ran upstairs to my room and flung myself face downwards on the bed. In my agony, I bit a large piece out of my pillow. The blood flowed forward and backward over me in waves, and I burst every now and then into a passion of weeping. By and by, I began to feel more serene. I decided that it was my duty to obey my father. My heart leapt within me at the thought of doing my duty, and, to calm myself, I put on my hat and wandered into the glen. It was very silent in the glen. There was no sound but the rustling of the leaves overhead, the popping of the insects underfoot, the sneezing of the cattle, the whistling of the pigs, the coughing of the field mice, the roaring of the rabbits, and the deep organ song of the sea. But suddenly, above all these noises, I heard a voice which sent the blood ebbing and flowing in my heart, and caused the back of my neck to quiver with ecstasy. Nell, it said, it was the voice of my old comrade Andrew Spinnaker, who had played with me in our childhood days, and whom I had not seen now for eight years. Andrew, I cried as I turned round, what are you doing here? I am just off to discover the South Pole, he said. My shipmates are waiting for me to command the expedition. 
I noticed then, for the first time, that he was dressed in a seal-skin cap and a pair of sleeping-bags. Nell, he went on, before I go, tell me you love me. My heart fluttered like a captured bird. My knees trembled like a drunken spider's. My throat was stifled like a stifled throat. A huge wave of something or other surged over me and told me that the great mystery of the world had happened to me. I was in love. I was in love with Andrew Spinnaker. Andrew, I cried, falling on his startled chin, I love you. All the back of my neck thrilled with joy. But my joy was short-lived. No sooner had I become aware that I loved Andrew Spinnaker than my conscience told me I had no right to do so. I was going to marry Lord Wurzel, and to love another than my husband was sin. I shook Andrew off my lips. I love you, I said, but I cannot marry you. I am marrying Lord Wurzel. That beast, cried Andrew, in the impetuous sailor fashion, which so endeared him to his shipmates. When I come back, I will thrash him as I would thrash a vicious ape. When will that be? In about two months, said my darling boy. This is going to be a very quick expedition. Alas, that will be my wedding day, I said with a low sob, like that of a buffalo yearning for its mate. It will be too late. Andrew took me in his strong arms. I should not have let him, but I could not help it. Listen, he said, I will start back from the pole a day before my shipmates and save you from that d beast, and then I will marry you, Nell. There was a roaring in my ears like the roaring of the bath when the tap is left on. Many waters seemed to rush upon me. My hat fell off, and then deep oblivion came over me, and I swooned. To go through my emotions in detail during the next two months would be but to harrow you needlessly. Suffice it to say that seventeen times I flung myself downwards on my bed and bit a piece out of the pillow. On twenty-nine occasions the blood ebbed slowly from my face, and my heart fluttered like a captured bird, while in a hundred and forty instances a wave of emotion surged slowly over my whole body, leaving me trembling like an aspen leaf. Otherwise, my health remained good. It was the night before the wedding. The bad Lord Wurzel had just left me with words of love upon his lying lips. 
"'Tomorrow, unless Andrew Spinnaker saved me, I should be Lady Wurzel.' "'A gram for you, miss,' said our faithful old gardener, William, entering the drawing-room noiselessly by the chimney. "'I brought it myself to be sure you got it.' With trembling fingers I tore it open." How my heart leapt, and the hot color flooded my neck and brow, when I recognized the dear schoolboy writing of my beloved Andrew. I have the message still. It went like this. Wireless, South Pole. Arrived safe, found pole. Weather charming, blue sky, not a breath of wind, am wearing my thick socks, sun never going down, constellations revolving without dipping, moon going sideways, am starting for England to-morrow, arrive Victoria, twelve o'clock Wednesday, Andrew. Back on Wednesday, and tomorrow was Tuesday, my wedding day. There was no hope. I felt like a shipwrecked voyager. For the thirty-fifth time since the beginning of the month, deep oblivion overcame me, and I swooned. Hall Kane I think you might go on now. I have put a little life into the story. It is perhaps not quite so vivid as my last work, The Woman Thou Gavest Me, of which more than a million g Mrs. Barclay, in the 200th edition of The Broken Hall Cane, Annoyed, Tut. Chapter 4. The End Mrs. Barclay resumes. At this point, in the little grey woman's story, handsome Dr. Dick put down his third piece of cake and got up. There was a baffled look on his virile face, which none of his previous wives had ever seen there. For once Dr. Dick was nonplussed. Is there much more of your story? he asked. Five hundred and nineteen pages, she said. The virile Benedict of the libraries took up his hat. Never had he exhaled youth so violently, yet never had he looked such a man. He had made up his mind. She was rich, but, after all, money was not everything. Goodbye, he said. A Didactic Novel in humble imitation of Mr. Eustace Miles's serial, in Healthward Ho. Help! And in furtherance of the great principle of self-cure. The Mystery of Gordon Square. Synopsis of Previous Chapters. Roger Dangerfield, the famous barrister, is passing through Gordon Square one December night, when he suddenly comes across the dead body of a man about forty years. To his horror, he recognizes it to be that of his friend, Sir Eustace Butt, M.P., who has been stabbed in seven places. 
Much perturbed by the incident, Roger goes home and decides to lead a new life. Hitherto, he had been notorious in the London clubs for his luxurious habits, but now he rises at 7.30 every morning and breathes evenly through the nose for five minutes before dressing. After three weeks of the breathing exercise, Roger adds a few simple lunges to his morning drill. Detective Inspector Frenchard tells him that he has a clue to the death of Sir Eustace, but that the murderer is still at large. Roger sells his London house and takes a cottage in the country, where he practices the simple life. He is now lunging ten times to the right, ten times to the left, and ten times backwards every morning, besides breathing lightly through the nose during his bath. One day he meets a yogi, who tells him that if he desires to track the murderer down, he must learn concentration. He suggests that Roger should start by concentrating on the word wardrobe, and then leaves this story and goes back to India. Roger sells his house in the country and comes back to town, where he concentrates for half an hour daily on the word wardrobe, besides, of course, persevering with his breathing and lunging exercises. After a heavy morning's drill, he is passing through Gordon Square when he comes across the body of his old friend, Sir Joshua Tubbs, M.P., who has been stabbed nine times. Roger returns home quickly and decides to practice breathing through the ears. Chapter 91 Preparation The appalling death of Sir Joshua Tubbs, M.P., following so closely upon that of Sir Eustace Butt, M.P., meant the beginning of a new life for Roger. His morning drill now took the following form. On rising at 7.30 a.m., he sipped a glass of distilled water, at the same time concentrating on the word wardrobe. This lasted for ten minutes, after which he stood before the open window for five minutes, breathing alternately through the right ear and the left. A vigorous series of lunges followed, together with the simple kicking exercises detailed in Chapter 4. These over, there was a brief interval of rest, during which our hero, breathing heavily through the back of his head, concentrated on the word doughnut. Refreshed by the mental discipline, he rose and stood lightly on the ball of his left foot, at the same time massaging himself vigorously between the shoulders with his right. After five minutes of this, he would rest again, lying motionless except for a circular movement of the ears. A cold bath, a brisk rub-down, and another glass of distilled water completed the morning training. But it is time we got on with the story. The murder of Sir Joshua Tubbs, M.P., had sent a thrill of horror through England, and hundreds of people wrote indignant letters to the press, blaming the police for their neglect to discover the assassin. Detective Inspector Frenchard, however, was hard at work, and he was inspired by the knowledge that he could always rely upon the assistance of Roger Dangerfield, the famous barrister, who had sworn to track the murderer down. To prepare himself for the forthcoming struggle, Roger decided, one sunny day in June, 
to give up the meat diet upon which he had relied so long, and to devote himself entirely to a vegetable regime. With that thoroughness which was now becoming a characteristic of him, he left London and returned to the country with the intention of making a study of food values. Chapter 92. Love Comes In It was a beautiful day in July, and the country was looking its best. Roger rose at 7.30 a.m. and performed those gentle, health-giving exercises which have already been described in previous chapters. On this glorious morning, however, he added a simple exercise for the elbows to his customary ones and went down to his breakfast as hungry as the proverbial hunter. A substantial meal of five dried beans and a stewed nut awaited him in the fine oak-paneled library, and as he did ample justice to the banquet, his thoughts went back to the terrible days when he lived the luxurious meat-eating life of the ordinary man about town, to the evening when he discovered the body of Sir Eustace Butt, M.P., and swore to bring the assassin to vengeance, to the day when... Suddenly, he realized that his thoughts were wandering. With iron will, he controlled them and concentrated fixedly on the word doughnut for twelve minutes. Greatly refreshed, he rose and strode out into the sun. At the door of his cottage, a girl was standing. She was extremely beautiful, and Roger's heart would have jumped if he had not had that organ, thanks to twisting exercise 23, under perfect control. "'Is this the way to Denfield?' she asked. "'Straight on,' said Roger. He returned to his cottage, breathing heavily through his ears. Chapter 93 Another Surprise Six months went by, and the murderer of Sir Joshua Tubbs, M.P., and Sir Eustace Butt, M.P., still remained at large. Roger had sold his cottage in the country and was now in London, performing his exercises with regularity, concentrating daily upon the words wardrobe and doughnut and wasp, and living entirely upon proteids. One day he had the idea that he would start a restaurant in the East End for the sale of meatless foods. This would bring him in touch with the lower classes, among whom he expected to find the assassin of his two oldest friends. In less than three or four years, the shop was a tremendous success. In spite of this, however, Roger did not neglect his exercises, taking particular care to keep the toes well turned in when lunging ten times backwards. Exercise 17. Once, to his joy, the girl whom he had first met outside his country cottage came in, and had her simple lunch of Smillopat, ninepence the dab, at his shop. That evening he lunched twelve times to the right instead of ten. One day business had taken Roger to the West End. As he was returning home at midnight through Gordon Square, he suddenly stopped and staggered back. A body lay on the ground before him. Hastily turning it over upon his face, Roger gave a cry of horror. It was Detective Inspector Frenchard, stabbed in eleven places. 
Roger hurried madly home and devised an entirely new set of exercises for his morning drill. A full description of these, however, must be reserved for another chapter. And so on, forever. End of section 12